Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, September 11th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Brussels threatens the UK with legal action if it overrides its Brexit treaty, and Citigroup's next chief executive is breaking up Wall Street's boys' club. Plus, we'll see what Japan might look like if frontrunner Yoshihide Suga becomes prime minister. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The UK and the EU agreed on a withdrawal agreement last year. A big part of that focused on Northern Ireland. The two sides came down on this. There would be no hard trade border. And to do this, Northern Ireland would stay close to the EU customs union, while also staying in the UK's customs territory. But this week, the UK introduced a bill that would undermine all of that. And this wasn't accidental. One cabinet minister said that the bill was actually intended to break international law. Now, the European Commission wants the UK to scrap the bill, or else the Commission will take legal action. The FT's EU correspondent Jim Brunsden explains that what we have now is a standoff. It's quite interesting how Brussels has decided to play this. They've handed the UK the end of September deadline to withdraw the legislation. Now, the UK has already said it's not going to do that. Uh, Michael Gove, the UK Cabinet Office Minister, who's the UK's chief representative on this joint committee, he said that there was no way that they were going to withdraw the legislation. So you have a standoff there. What the EU has said is, well, you've got to withdraw it. Otherwise, we're going to explore our options for retaliation which are baked into the treaty, because the the treaty, when it was agreed last year with Boris Johnson, contains a clear system for dealing with disputes. And essentially, the EU has identified two options, and it set these out in an internal note. One of them is to launch a dispute settlement procedure against the UK under the terms of the treaty. The other is that actually the EU could also haul the UK before the European Court of Justice, because even though the UK has left the European Union, the jurisdiction of the ECJ continues to apply over the UK in some ways. Now, either of those courses of action, a dispute settlement procedure or going to the ECJ, could lead to financial sanctions for the UK. If the UK were then to refuse to pay those, then things escalate even further, and effectively the EU could start withdrawing unilaterally from certain aspects of either the Brexit deal or any future trade deal um, struck with the United Kingdom. What's very interesting is it hasn't taken any steps to kill off the talks on trade and other aspects of the two sides' future relationship. What EU diplomats say here in Brussels is that um, they see that calling off these future relationship talks would amount to falling into a trap set by the UK. And essentially, the the EU is is refusing to enter a kind of no-deal scenario on the UK's behalf. You know, the message very clearly from diplomats here is is if the UK wants a no-deal, it needs to clearly say that that's the uh, route it wants to go down, and the EU is not going to do that on the UK's behalf. So it sounds like there's still some hope yet. Jim Brunson is our EU correspondent. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure. There's now a crack in Wall Street's glass ceiling. Citigroup announced on Thursday that Gene Fraser will take over as chief executive. She'll replace Mike Corbett when he steps down in February. And when that happens, she'll become the first woman to take over as CEO of a big Wall Street bank. Here with me now is Laura Noonan, our U.S. banking editor. Laura, what can you tell us about Gene Fraser? I guess the first thing I'd say is Jane is very different from the other chief executives currently on Wall Street, not just because she is female and she'll be the first female CEO, as you said, of a large Wall Street bank, but her whole manner is also pretty different. So she is Scottish. She's been at City for 16 years. She started out in McKinsey. She just has a very direct and a very different approach to the other chief executives I've come across on Wall Street. 
and of course a big moment because she's the first woman CEO of a big Wall Street bank. Does it open the door for more women in these kind of high-profile positions? We had actually for a long time expected JP Morgan to have the first female CEO. They have a number of very senior females, including Jen Peepsack, who's the current chief financial officer, and Marianne Lake, the former chief financial officer, who is now running the cards business. So there are certainly other women who are coming up in the ranks. I think we will see, I mean, now that we have had one, I think definitely over the coming years, we will see more. It should also hopefully be helpful in terms of trying to attract talent, female talent to the industry, because one of the things that banks have struggled to do is to really get enough women in. And when you have an executive committee or an operating committee, which is overwhelmingly male and which is led by men saying, yes, we are serious about female talent. Yes, we do really want women. It doesn't resonate in the same way as if you have a female CEO saying it. And if you have a bank that has actually appointed a woman to its most senior position, that is obviously gives an added push to those efforts to recruit more female talent. Kind of walking the walk versus talking the talk. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Laura. Laura Noonan is the FT's U.S. banking editor. Japan's ruling party will choose a prime minister next week to replace Shinzo Abe. He's stepping down because of health reasons. And there's a clear frontrunner to replace him. He has quite an unusual background for a Japanese politician. That's our FT Tokyo bureau chief, Robin Harding, talking about favorite candidate Yoshihide Suga. He was the son of a strawberry farmer, and he rose up through local politics to reach parliament. And now it looks like the very top it's unusual for Japan, where many politicians like uh, Prime Minister Abe are hereditary and they had a father and grandfather in politics. And Robin says one of the biggest things facing Mr. Suga will be trying to maintain Mr. Abe's legacy, something Mr. Suga helped build. Mr. Suga is known as a tough, tenacious operator, a master manipulator of the bureaucracy and an effective operator behind the scenes. Most notably, he's been Prime Minister Abe's chief cabinet secretary for the last eight years. And a number of Prime Minister Abe's biggest achievements, like the huge rise in inbound tourism, are down to Mr. Suga's effective forcing through of change through the bureaucracy. So in that case, opening the country to Chinese tourists. A lot of other things that Mr. Abe has achieved also effectively Suga achievements like reform of the electricity market, uh, reform of agriculture, quite a number of these things are down to Chief Cabinet Secretary Suga's effective political machinations. So would it be fair to say that Mr. Suga would be an extension of a lot of what we saw under Prime Minister Abe? Mr. Suga is explicitly running as a continuation of the Abe administration. So all of the signature Abe policies are likely to stay in place. I think there will be some change of emphasis, though. Mr. Abe was most consumed by diplomacy and Japan's place in the world, You know, famously flying to visit Donald Trump before he took office. Mr. Suga's much more domestic. If he has any sort of political identity, it's as an economic reformer, 
sort of in the mould of Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. He's someone who believes very much in opening things up, competition, the free market. He's very big on pocketbook issues. For example, recently he's been picking on Japan's mobile phone companies and demanding that they cut bills. So that may well be somewhere where we see some kind of action from him. Top of the agenda has to be COVID-19. That's the political reason why he is getting chosen, because his party thinks they need someone effective to tackle the coronavirus epidemic. If he's successful in doing that, then he will get the chance to pursue a full policy agenda. But first up, for the next six months, he has to get a grip on COVID and he has to sort out its impact on the economy. Robin Harding is the FT's Tokyo Bureau Chief. And before we go, a couple of tech stories for your Friday. First, Microsoft said on Thursday that Russian hackers are again going after Democrats and Republicans in this U.S. presidential election. The company also warned of hacking attempts from China. And a few earnings reports from After the Bell in New York yesterday. Oracle, which is bidding against Microsoft for TikTok's American business, saw a surprise increase in new software license sales. It helped revenue beat expectations. And Peloton was yet another company thriving due to the work-from-home trend. Last quarter, the American Exercise Equipment Group experienced a revenue jump of 172% compared with the same quarter last year. Peloton shares were up more than 10% at the time of this recording and after hours trading yesterday. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Fiona Simon and me, Mark Filipino. Our editor is Dan Bobkoff. We had help from Gavin Kalman, Michael Bruning, and Amy Keane. Our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.